We'll open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're continuing our study through this book. title of our study today is Gripped by the Love of Christ. You probably know where we're going here. Uh, gripped by the Love of Christ. And let's begin reading in some of the verses we looked at last week, just to give us a little running start. We'll begin in verse 6. Verse 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And now the verses that we'll look at today. Verse 10. For we must all appear for before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. These are the precious words of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts smile as we read these words of joy and hope. These words of salvation. These words of truth. And yet we also see in these words severe reminders of the reality of good and bad. The reality of what will come in the future. There is a day when we will stand before Christ. Thank God, those who repent and believe will be redeemed. And they will have no fear of condemnation. Lord, for those who have not believed, I pray that today you would shed spiritual light into their hearts. Give them an understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who do call ourselves the children of God by faith, Lord, remind us that we will be held accountable for how we avail ourselves of Your grace. Challenge us today, we pray. And strengthen us as we go from this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's jump right into verse 10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The first key question we, we, we naturally come to in the text here is, what is the judgment seat of Christ? Many of you know that judgment seat comes from the Greek word bima. Many of the towns in Paul's, Paul's time had a bema seat. This was a prominent place where a ruler would make decisions, judgments. It's a place where very important announcements were made, etc. 
In the Olympic Games, you know that the awards were given from the Bema Seat. And so what is the judgment seat of Christ? Now, if you've studied this topic before, you're probably aware that there is some debate on this, particularly as this judgment seat relates to the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. The debate is over whether these are two separate judgments or one. Now, our church holds to the separate events position. Mark taught on this several years ago when, we, when he took us through the book of Revelation. Regardless of the debate... It is with 100% confidence and no apology that today I tell you that the judgment seat of Christ is the place where each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And you can bank on that definition. Of course, I'm just reading the verse. If you want to know more, you can take Spurgeon's advice. We'll find out when we get there, right? Now, the truth is, we will study more on this today. And seriously, I sat in my office this week with big, thick, systematic theology books sitting on my desk representing both sides of this discussion. And the more I wrote out notes on the debate to teach on this today, the more my sermon ballooned. And the further I got from what I believe is Paul's intent for putting verse 10 in the text... So for the sake of time and for the sake of textual intent, I'm going to stay very close to the verse in this chapter. I'm not going to venture so much into why we believe these are two distinct events. If you have questions on this, we don't want to discuss this further, I welcome a phone call, an email. We can visit over a coffee. You can contact any of the elders. They'll be happy to chat with you on these things. In all honesty, there is a part of me that loves to debate, that loves to wrestle with the details of topics like this, because the deeper we dig, what do we find? More and more the glory of God. These are truths well worth plumbing deeply for. The more awesome we find He really is, and the more it humbles us, or at least it should. And to be honest with you, the more I debate or study differing perspectives from God-fearing, word-exalting men and women of faith, the more I sit back and realize we agree on a lot more than we realize. We agree on far more than we disagree. And 99% of the time, the disagreement doesn't make any difference in this life and how we should live it for Christ. Or at the most, the difference is so small but I sincerely believe we are better off setting our difference aside and uniting on the essentials of the Christian faith and practice. I like to look at it this way. You can imagine two soldiers sitting in the trench side by side with enemy fire all around them and they're debating over whether 9mm or 45 is best for their handguns. We would all think the same thing. Are you guys nuts? You have ammo, shoot it. There's a, there's a battle to be won. There is a war to be won. And quite frankly, time is of essence. I like to think of the Christian faith similarly. Yes, there's a time to wrestle through the finer points of doctrine. Graham mentioned this this morning in Sunday school. The glory of God is found there as well. 
But meanwhile, we have to recognize that time is of essence and the kingdom of God is profited immeasurably more when we unite in the essentials of our beloved Christian faith. And by the grace of God, that is exactly what I'm going to do my best to pursue in this text today. So beginning in verse 10, we see in the context of everything that Paul just said prior that he is clearly addressing the church. He is addressing believers and their present reality and their future reality. So with that understanding, we observe several, several things about the judgment seat of Christ just from verse 10. Number one, all believers will be there. No one escapes this moment of accountability, ultimate accountability. Paul reminds the Romans in Romans 14, verse 10, speaking again to believers, he says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Observation number two, Christ will be the judge. This is clear. This is yet another reason, another awesome reason to worship Jesus Christ. He will be, He is, and always will be the final authority. He has the power. He has the wisdom to judge. John 5.22 says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. In 2 Timothy 4.1, Paul references Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead. Later in John chapter 5, verse 27, it says, He, referring to the Father, gave Him, referring to the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. There is no doubt that Christ will be the judge at this Bema seat. Number three, there will be a recompensing. The ESV says we will receive what is due. Dictionary defines recompense this way. To repay, to remunerate, to reward as for service aid, etc. We see this pictured well and taught clearly in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. Many of you know this. We won't take time to read all that, but we learn from that parable that a day of accountability and reward and judgment is coming. For the believers, it will be a day of reward, but for the unbelievers, it will be a day of judgment. And specific to the judgment seat of Christ, we surely recognize from this parable that Christians will receive differing degrees of rewards. That's a very clear fact in the, in the, in the parable, the lesson there. This will be a day of recompensing. Observation number four on the judgment seat of Christ. It will be based on everything we do in this physical, temporal body. Christian friend, don't dare believe that just because we have a ticket to heaven in our pocket, we can live however we want on earth. Paul sucker punched that lie from Satan in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. ESV says, by no means. And you got to love the King James. God forbid. Judgment seat of Christ, observation number five. Some actions, our actions, our behaviors, our works, some actions will be good and others will be bad. When the words good and bad are used, we do not believe this to be in the strictest moral sense. 
We do not understand this to be a judgment of sins because our sins have already been dealt with. Listen carefully. Christ already died. And Christ already came back to life. We already believe by grace through faith. We already repent. God already forgave. God already forgot. God already adopted us. And the Holy Spirit already indwells. Grace is already ours. The deal is sealed. We studied that last week in regards to the pledge of the Spirit that God has already given us. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12-15. to This is a key text that sheds important light on this whole topic. It says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it, referring to the foundation, if it remains, he will receive a reward. We believe this to be the Bema Seat, the judgment seat of Christ. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. There is little room for misunderstanding or misinterpretation here. Believers will have their works judged. And some works will be proven worthless. And others will be proven valuable. And for those whose works are proven valuable, there will be reward. Again, they'll praise the Lord. There is no getting to the judgment seat of Christ and having to worry that we might not be forgiven when our repentance and faith was truly in Christ alone. What does Romans 8.1 say? There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This Bema Seat of Christ is clearly not a salvation issue at stake. We're not being judged as guilty or not guilty for sin. Again, that already happened in Christ Jesus. Dead, buried, rose again, done. This 1 Corinthians text is referring to if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Those are key phrases, key lessons. He will suffer loss. That's clearly not saying that he will lose eternal life because the verse clearly says he himself will be saved. That loss is referring to the if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Some Christians will get more reward and some Christians will lose reward. One will be good and one will be bad. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs of God's rewards for the faithful, hardworking servants of Jesus Christ. You can do a study later on the crowns that God will give us for the glory of God when we get to heaven. But for now, we simply recognize that there are going to be rewards and not everyone will get them. Some Christian's behavior is going to prove to be wood, hay, and stubble. It will go up in smoke. That's a thought for us. But the quality of some believers' works, their behaviors, their actions, their lifestyle, etc., will prove to be gold, silver, and precious stone in the eternal kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 3.8 Now he who plants and he who waters 
referring to the people of God, performing the mission of God, are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So much we could say. I'm really starting to drift from today's text. I want to stay close to it. But then again, we must be careful to let Scripture explain and validate our understanding and our interpretation of Scripture. This again drives home the importance of every one of us being a student, an avid student of the Word of God, daily studying the truth so that we can accurately handle the text, the gift, the treasure that we've been given, so that we rightly divide it, so that we rightly give an answer to others of the hope that lies within us. I fear for those who call themselves Christians, followers of Christ, but can hardly speak a word of clarity on His behalf. At the end of chapter 5, in a couple weeks, we're going to see that we are ambassadors for Christ. We are representatives. We are spokespersons, whether we like it or not. By default, by adoption, by calling, we are ambassadors of God. We must speak on His behalf. But for today, we see five things in Paul's teachings regarding the judgment seat of Christ in, these, in verse 10. And it's important that we recognize that's all Paul said in verse 10. If that's all we had to work with, that would be enough support. That would be enough to support Paul's intended purpose for even bringing this up. If Paul wanted to say more, he could have, but he didn't. His intent was not to dissect future judgment. His intent wasn't to give a seminary-level lecture on eschatology, particularly the judgment events. The focus is not on how many people will be there or when exactly they'll get there or whether this is going to happen inside or outside of time or what exactly is meant by the good and the bad. These are good questions. They're worth exploring in the context of all Scripture. But that's not Paul's point. So what was his point? Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men... Let's add two more concrete observations to our list on the judgment seat of Christ. Number six, it should ignite the fear of the Lord in us. And number seven, it should motivate us to persuade others. Paul says, therefore, therefore, seeing that the whole judgment seat of Christ topic is both true and relevant, whatever it all entails, knowing that God means what He says, and knowing that, he, that, that, that this has massive, eternal, God-sized ramifications, and knowing that this humbles us and causes us to stand in awe and to fearfully and wonderfully submit to the Word. The, this is the fear of the Lord. We must do everything we can to persuade others to convince people of the truth of the gospel and the truth of our ministry, to urge them to repent and believe. As we're going to study at the end of chapter 5, to beg them to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven, and to freely receive the righteousness of Christ. That is the focus of this portion of the text. I am convinced 
as much as I can be in this life, that when we get to heaven, God will not ask us if we properly understood the detailed mechanics of the judgment seat in the great white throne judgment. He will ask us if we persuaded others. Surely He will. He will ask if we availed ourselves of the manifold grace to do good works, to truly do good for the glory of God by the grace of God. However that works spiritually, supernaturally. We would have to be blind to miss this point. Do we share our faith? Are we burdened for the lost? Not just so burdened that we feel bad for them, but so burdened that we rescue them. We rescue them with the gospel. We run straight into the storm. We run straight into what appears to be a very dark night so we can speak truth to them. Are we doing everything within our means, within our God-given power, within our Holy Spirit-guided intellect to share the real Jesus Christ with those who don't know Him? Romans 10, verse 12 to 15 says, For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Aren't you glad that God's saving grace has no limit? He will not run out. Verse 13, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But we know the text doesn't stop there. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And that's not referring to the person who stands behind this pulpit. It's referring to the proclaimer, to the messenger, to the ambassador, the representative. How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That is a good work. That's gold, silver, and precious stones right there. Paul says, therefore, we persuade men. Because we fear God, because we know we will stand before Christ, because we know He will judge rightly, because we know there will be a reward to the glory of God, and because we recognize it is possible to waste away our Christian life, we persuade men. Think about this with me. If a person genuinely believed those judgment seat of Christ points to be true, how could they not persuade others? My deep concern is that people don't share because they don't believe. Or at best, they share little because they believe little. The book of James drives this belief action reality home. You can't believe it and not do it. Real faith is going to produce real works. They're inseparable. Question, do you and I believe in the judgment seat of Christ? Our evangelism is our answer. And I'll say it first, I need to believe more. A lot more. Thank God for the faithful, patient teachings of His Word and work of His ministry. But let us not test His patience. Let us not test His sovereignty. None of us knows when our life will end and we will suddenly find ourselves standing before God. Standing before the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ our Savior. 
the one who gave himself for us. I've divided our study today into three parts. There's three key lessons, and this is our first lesson. Our reason to persuade others. Our reason to persuade others. And I encourage you to dive into this topic in your salt groups. Do not dive into the debate. You can set up another meeting to do that if you would like. Dive into Paul's whole reason for even bringing this up. Because both sides of the debate can certainly agree on this. We will stand before Christ and how we live this life as believers will make an eternal difference. We pursue evangelism with a faith-based eye on our ultimate accountability, the Bema seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And by the grace of God, we need not fear standing there. Because last we checked, that grace is sufficient. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, Paul says. The verse continues, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Paul's saying here, but as for who we really are and the quality of our work, God already knows the truth. We are made manifest to God. The truth is revealed. The matter is already made known to Him. And we know that He knows. There is no persuading or convincing or explaining needed with God. He knows the truth. And then Paul says, and we hope you do too. In your most honest and personal assessment of us, in your conscience, we hope you see what God sees. Remember, Paul was being falsely accused on numerous fronts. The majority of this book is a defense of the gospel and a defense of his ministry of it. There is so much wisdom here for us in these short phrases. At the end of the day, you and I cannot control what everyone else is going to think of us. We saw this very practical handling of other people's opinions in prior chapters in this book. We can only do our best to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 In the end, it is God's opinion that matters. We can only hope and pray that people will also judge us rightly and honestly and treat us as they know, as we know that they would also want to be treated. There's such excellent practical advice in these phrases. Verse 12, here's, this, here's the second key focus for our study today. And, and yes, of course, we, we could have easily wrapped up right here. Our reason for persuading others, the fear of the Lord, the judgment seat, the rewards to come. could have easily made that first point, the single focus of today's sermon. But I don't want anyone to accuse me of cutting this sermon short just because the Seahawks are playing right now. Don't even think about that game. Who are they playing? Steelers? Don't go there. And whatever you do, don't go blurting out the score at the end of the service, okay? There are a number of God-fearing 12s here who are recording the game and they're going to watch it this afternoon. Don't think about the Seahawks right now. That's wood, hay, and stubble, amen? But it's not sin. Okay, forgive me. Back to 2 Corinthians. Back to our text. We see that our first key lesson is our reason to persuade others. The second now in verse 12 is our responsibility to protect each other 
Look at this in the text. Verse 12. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. You have to sit and just soak in some of these verses for a while and contemplate and meditate them and read them in context to see some of the practical realities Paul was addressing and going through himself. You may recall the issue is that there were self-proclaimed leaders in the church who had come into the church who were attacking Paul's credibility, his capability, his motives for doing ministry. They were Pharisees in all reality, taking great pride in appearance and not in heart, the text says. Do you think that problem lurks in churches today? Of course. So here's what strikes me in this verse. Paul is equipping the people of the church to defend him, to ultimately defend the gospel. It's one thing to defend oneself. It's another to be defended by one's friends and for them to skillfully use the truth of the matter, the heart of the matter, in your defense. Looking back at the start of the verse, Paul says, we are not again commending ourselves to you. He says, we're not trying to puff ourselves up. We're not waving our credentials. We're not making, trying to make ourselves look good. Actually, we are trying to give you an occasion to be proud of us. That wording gives some real insights into the situation and what must have been going on in Corinth. The believers were originally on Paul's side, and they must have stood up for him at some point, but they were humiliated by the false accusations and the slander levied against Paul, and therefore against them. They were hurt in the process. Have you ever been hurt or humiliated trying to stand up for someone? Here's what we see here. In the process of defending himself, Paul is actually looking to defend them. This phrase comes to mind again. We are in this together. When one hurts, we all hurt. When one rejoices, we all rejoice. When one is falsely accused... There is a very real sense in which we are all falsely accused. When one is rightly defended, all of God's people are rightly defended. One of my prayers for our church family is that we will stand up for each other when that's the right thing to do. They will stand up for other believers when that's the right thing to do. People outside this church, people inside this church, now, of course, heaven forbid, we should overlook, overlook, or even worse yet, defend sin. That's not godliness. That's not Christ-likeness. That's sin in itself. And heaven forbid, we should shoot each other in the back. But by all means, may we be a people who stand ready to defend our brothers and sisters in Christ when that is the right and called thing to do. I suspect you know as well as I do that Satan is working and he will always work over time to divide this church family, to break up the unity, to weaken the trust in each other. And as Paul pointed out early in this book, particularly to weaken the trust in God's grace in one another. They are sinners. They are weak. We all are. But we have God's grace and our confidence is in the grace of God in one another. Satan is going to do all he can to disrupt that trust in the grace of God in each other. And at times he will use sin. 
And God, give us the grace to lovingly and gently, as Scripture says, to appropriately deal swiftly with sin and restore the saved sinner. But more often than not, I suspect Satan won't use the sins, particularly the gross, large sins of others. He will use the lies. He'll use the misunderstandings, the mistrust, the selfishness, the self-preservation, and the list goes on. My church family, we must be diligent to earn each other's trust. And we must be diligent to protect it once we've got it. Fear the damage of secret sin that could take place in our homes and in our private lives. Don't go there. So that when the great accuser comes and spreads doubts and accusations, time will prove them to be false. We've seen this in prior chapters as Paul was giving his defense. His unshakable confidence was in part founded in his absolute innocence. Chapter 1, verse 12, Paul said, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in this world, and especially towards you. That needs to be our statement when our character is tested. And should there be sin in the church, by the grace of God, let us not wait to be caught. Let us readily and voluntarily deal with it privately before God deals with it publicly. Let us seek forgiveness from others when that's the right thing to do. Let us humble ourselves and confess our faults so healing can happen in the church. Let us be a people who are ready to forgive because how much have we been forgiven? All. 1 Peter 4.17 for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? One of the great treasures of any church family is their unity, their trust, their deep and godly love for one another. Let us not be so naive to think that Satan will leave us alone and that we will not need to work tirelessly to protect and guard the integrity of each other. The title of our entire 1 Corinthians study last year was Divided We Cannot Stand, United We Cannot Fall. And Paul is trusting God for that unity in the church of Corinth. He's trusting it for himself. And that church was already suffering the damaging effects of misspoken words and false accusations. God, protect our tongues and give us discernment of truth, especially when it comes to one another. Isn't it interesting, interesting how similar the church of 2019 is with the church of 55, or whatever year this was? 2,000 years later, and both sin and spiritual power have not changed. The battle is the same, and the battle belongs to the Lord, praise God. Let's look quickly at the riddle in verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of a sound mind, it is for you. Again, Paul's dealing with the reality of his context. He was accused of being out of his mind, a madman. He says, if that's the case, it's for God. 
It's for His glory. It's for His purposes. Can you and I say we are fanatical for the praise and the mercy and the mission of God? On the other hand, he says, if we are not out of our mind, it's for your sake. The point here is either way, Paul is saying that he's doing what he's doing. He is enduring what he is enduring for the glory of God and the sake of others. The eternal benefit of others. His point is that he's not doing it for himself. We studied this a couple weeks ago. For you, for the glory of God. That phrase should, should just reign in our minds. We do what we do for the spiritual benefit, the eternal benefit of others, and for the glory of God. Paul was not behaving the way he was out of selfishness or pride or outer appearance or the applause of men. These weren't his motivations or his reward. He says, for you, for the glory of God. And all of these verses continue to point forward to the mighty pillar of verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. The first key lesson today was our reason to persuade others. The second is our responsibility to protect each other. And the third is the love that makes both of those happen. We're passionate about the lost. And we're passionate about the church because Christ was passionate about us. This is really the climax of the whole flow of logic in this portion of the text. Paul was so aware, he was so impacted, so moved by Christ's love for him that it dictated the way he lived. In a sense, he's saying, I have to do what I'm doing because Jesus loves me. Christ's love demonstrated through His life and His death and resurrection controls me. It grabs hold of me. Christian friend, what grips you in this life? What moves you and me? What gets us excited? What influences our biggest decisions in this life? We could also look at it this way. What do we do if we feel like we're losing control? We grip. If we're losing control of the car, we grip the steering wheel. If you're holding the pet and you lose control, you, you carefully grab tighter. If a toddler starts running toward the road, we grip them. We grab hold. That's the title of our study today. Gripped by the love of Christ. And Paul says, the love of Christ grabs hold of me and it dominates my thoughts and my beliefs and my behaviors and my emotions my comparisons. What an incredible list of comparisons he's given us in chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Paul says, it governs my life. The love of Christ governs me. Paul has, in a most remarkable way, submitted to the controlling love of Christ. And that is real power. When there's a marital difficulty... Our greatest need is not for deeper understanding of the other spouse. It's not for more willpower. We want the love of Christ to control us. That will yield understanding and strength from above. When there's a sudden tragedy, we want the love of Christ to sweep in like a tidal wave and control our thoughts and our emotions and our fears and our worries. 
when we suffer for doing what's right, particularly for Christ, when we suffer in the life of faith and Christian living, we want the love of God to shrink our affliction to the weight of a feather, as Paul said. To take the months or the years of loss and sorrow and turn them but into a moment. For the love of Christ controls us. It grabs hold and it doesn't let go. It guides. It uplifts. It secures. It protects. It inspires. It empowers. I have to ask myself, is my life marked by the controlling love of Christ? What does that even look like? Reread the first four and a half chapters of 2 Corinthians and you will see that love-controlled life staring you in the face. The life that is marked by the controlling love of Christ is the life that looks like Christ. I encourage all of you in your salt groups this week to explore this topic more. As we wrap up, the verse continues. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. That's Paul referring to the believer's spiritual reality of dying with Christ in salvation. He died once and for all. Verse 15. And he died for all so that they who might live, excuse me, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That's the love of Christ right there. He died and rose again on their behalf. I mean, don't you love that double-sided reality? Christ didn't just die for us. He rose for us. There's the hope of salvation. We see the love-controlled life in this verse as well. So that they who live might no longer live for themselves. It's not rocket science, is it? Christ didn't die so we could turn around and live the good life for self, but so that we could live for Him. Him who died and rose again on my behalf, on your behalf. Do we see what the verse is saying? Christ died for His own good pleasure. He died for His own deserved glory. That's why Paul just said in verse 9, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. The goal of this life and the goal of heaven don't change. The goal is to please God. The blood of Christ doesn't free us to live for self. It frees us to be the blessed bondservants of the one who saved us. The very one who died and rose again on our behalf. His love for us deserves our living for Him. And living for Jesus is nothing less than the proper response of gratitude. Living for Jesus is nothing less than the proper and deserved response of worship. When those around you and me look at us, can they say, now there goes a man or woman who is living for Jesus. He died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and rose again on their behalf. Let's pray.
Lord, your word is like such a tidal wave. Such a tidal wave of truth. A wave of hope. A wave of instruction. It is a wave of grace. Lord God, we want to ride that wave well. We recognize that we are called to live for Jesus. We are called and been given all the reason we need to be controlled by the love of Christ. We have all the motivation we need to persuade others knowing that we are going to stand before you someday and that someday is sooner than we think. And there is a day of reward coming. Lord, we want rewards for the glory of God. Help us today and as we move forward to more and more walk by faith, not by sight. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.